All right, tonight we are going to be doing Revelation 14, hopefully get through 13 verses here tonight. We did touch on verse 1 last week, so I'm going to read that again just to keep our context here of this chapter. It says, Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, and, I like, and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. So we saw these 144,000 before, uh, back in chapter 7. And now we're getting to see them again. What we saw in chapter 7 is that they were sealed on their forehead of basically the, the seal of God. And so from there, we kind of started to move in slowly into seeing another seal, a seal of the Antichrist, the opposite. And we've talked about that here recently. We also see kind of, th this chapter is really taking us back to things we've already seen in a lot of ways. Chapter 5, verse 11 in Revelation, we saw basically a scene in heaven where there were 24 elders around the throne, the lamb in the middle of the throne, the four living creatures there at the throne, and the elders bowing down and putting their crowns, you know, before the lamb, all of this kind of thing. And so everything that you're reading here, even the voice, the voice from heaven, <coughs> the voice of many waters, we see God's voice. In chapter 5, it talked about the voice of many angels. So there's a lot of praising going on. So this chapter is taking you back to that scene of chapter 5. And basically what you're seeing is it's taking you to the throne of God. All of these events that are going on on earth and people taking the mark of the beast and all of that, that's the earthly aspect of it. This is the heavenly aspect of it. As I mentioned last week, in chapter 13, you're really focused on the earthly aspect of it, which seems to be so ugh, dark and ugly. But now we're switching to this really great place, a place of praise and redemption and the presence of God. And so that's where the reader here, or the reader should be going, is to that heavenly throne. Now, the 144,000 that we saw in chapter 7, verse 4, here we get more details about them than what we got in chapter 7. We did look at some of this jumping ahead when we were there, but they were singing a new song. And I'm going to kind of focus on each of these aspects uh, one at a time, but it seems to be a song of deliverance. And when we look in Scripture, new songs are often associated with deliverance. You have, for example, Miriam after the Exodus, after they crossed the Red Sea. There is a song of deliverance. Mary. Mary has a song, a new song that she sings when she 
uh, has the Lord inside her, knowing that there's deliverance coming, those kinds of things. And so it's just many, many times throughout Scripture associated with deliverance. It seems to be the case here because these 144,000 were redeemed from the earth. They're not on earth anymore. They're at the throne. And I don't know, but, you know, just uh, making some guesses here, that nobody else could sing this song because they could relate. That when you're delivered, when, when somebody goes through a common experience, it bonds them together. Youth, when they go on mission trips, <laughs> uh, oftentimes, uh, what do they call, uh, Sailor said they went, it was an impact. impact trip, and I like that. I thought, rather than calling it a mission trip, let's call it what it is. It's an impact trip. They can make an impact on the community. They are impacted themselves. But there's a bond that goes on there. Likewise, when people go to war together, you become bonded together, they say, like no other. There is something when you share a common experience that it bonds you together, and only you can understand. So whether that's what this is or not, I'm sure that there is an aspect of that, just because of the way people are. This common experience. Now, here we're seeing some other things about the 144,000 here, which we're going to get into, that they are going to be the first fruits. They are going to be sealed. They are the overcomers, in a sense, as well. And we'll talk about those things as we move on. But first, let me just give you some examples of Scripture as far as this new song goes. Um, here we read in Psalm 98, Sing to the Lord a new song. Why? Well, it says, For he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. So why are they singing a new song? Because of salvation. Because the right hand of God, Jesus, Yeshua, has brought salvation to them. And that is something worth praising God for. And I think... As I was putting this together, I thought, boy, how often we just get so used to the mundane and the norm, and we go to church, we hear the gospel, we talk about the gospel, we say the word gospel, and all it is is just a word that does nothing to prick our conscience, our spirit, our joy, anything. It doesn't cause our emotions to rise up to want to sing a new song. But I want you guys to remember, you have been redeemed. And it's like I said in the prayer earlier, Lord, restore unto us the joy of our salvation, that we would just be able to say, enough of this world. What I want to be touched by the truth of being saved so that it causes to well up inside of me. Just Have you ever had those little brief moments of where you just... It's so bottled up and you just want to let it out. You don't even have words to say your, your appreciation, your joy. And that's what this is about. Okay, sing to the Lord a new song. Let it, 
let your, your spirit free to praise God. Almost like what we were saying before, that you know, we enter into his courts. They have entered into his courts. They are literally at the throne of God. And when you do that, I'm telling you, it's going to bubble over. Okay? It will bubble over. And that is something to look forward to. From the many times we see these new songs in reference to worship, <laughs> that's why I say it's most probable that that's why we see it here in Revelation. Because this is about salvation and deliverance. So, um, an outpouring of their hearts. You can see many other examples that I have listed here from Psalm 33, Psalm 40, Psalm 96, Psalm 98, Psalm 144, Psalm 149, Isaiah 42, verse 10. It's everywhere. This new song, all of them in reference to deliverance and salvation. Do you guys truly believe that you've been saved? Or has the gospel become old news? If it has, I don't have any 12-step you know, program for you to figure out how to find that joy, but I can tell you this, it all begins with praying, Lord, restore unto me that joy. Do not let this become old news in my life. I want it to be fresh. I want it to bubble over so that I cannot help but tell the person next to me what God has done for me. To... I, I always think of this of Paul because I can relate so strongly. Who can rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus my Lord. That we, we just get outside of this flesh and live by the Spirit. That we get outside of this world that from every angle, it's, it's easy. We live in this world and so everywhere we turn, there is something of this world to distract us from the reason that we are here. Revelation 14, verse 4 continues, talking of these 144,000. These are the ones who were not defiled with women. See what you do to us, guy, uh, us men, women? For they are virgins. Now, what's that? Okay. This being virgins does not necessarily mean that they had never had sexual relations with a woman. I'm not going to say that it can't be that. It could be. But it certainly does not have to be. And the reason I say that is because scripturally we see being a virgin is all about spiritual purity. Second of all, as a husband and a wife, it is not unholy or impure to have sexual relations with your spouse. That is a holy thing. That is even a commanded thing by God. Protected by God. You know, and so to say that just because that they had slept with the woman made them unpure or defiled just doesn't make any sense biblically. In a spiritual sense, it could very well simply mean they never prostituted themselves to the world, to false gods, idols, 
or whatever that is. Because we see um, the whole book of Hosea, as an example, talks about how Israel had prostituted themselves. We see that we are the bride of Christ. And so when we cheat on God by, say, taking the mark of the beast, walking in disobedience, that is a form of adultery, unfaithfulness to God. And so these are people who have never been unfaithful, never have been impure. Now, like I said, there could be another aspect of this. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says that I wish that all of you could be as I am. But each of us has their own gift from God. An unmarried man is concerned about the affairs of the Lord, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world and how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. I am saying this not to restrict you, but that you may live in an undivided devotion to the Lord, that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. So, sometimes I think even though it might be holy and right to be married and to have sexual relations with your spouse, sometimes marriages can be a distraction from the purity of God too, even a good relationship, because we are concerned about the affairs of this world, being able to take care of your spouse. I'm not saying that it's wrong. It is not wrong to take care of your spouse. That too is godly, but sometimes as our interests are divided. And I think that's why it's important for husbands and wives sometimes to really be on board to chase the Lord together. Rather than have divided interests, to have a single focus. And maybe that's on both sides. I mean, as a husband, I, my job is to try and lead my family to be focused on God. But maybe as a wife, that's why your job is to be the helpmeet to make sure that your husband keeps focused on God. And... There's many ways to do that. I'm not going to, I mean, we could talk all night about that. There's umpteen ways to focus on God. That doesn't mean you have to be a pastor, a missionary, you know, an evangelist as you're calling. It simply means that you are a disciple of Christ Jesus first, disguised as a garbage collector, disguised as a teacher, disguised as an engineer, a salesman, whatever it might be. But your first priority is to be serving God in everything that you do. Not to be serving our flesh. So, like I said, I could go on and on about that, but something for you to think about for those who are in relationships or about to be in relationships, one day be in relationships, that our goal must be to chase after God. That is the purpose of what a marriage is supposed to be. And to do that together will be a blessing rather than have divided interests. And one more thing to add to this, I know you guys know this, but I think it's important in the context of this, 
that I talk about people who claim to be homosexuals today, that they are not homosexuals. Stop calling yourself a homosexual. Being careful not to make any eye contact with anybody as I'm saying that. <laughs> You're not homosexual because you see that is the identity that God or that the world has given these people because you don't have an attraction to a woman. Paul said, I wish that all of you could be as I am. Paul was not a homosexual. He just had full devotion to the Lord. He, he was said, I wish that you could have this gift. Because he goes on later, says, if you burn with passion, by all means get married. But he says, it's better if you don't burn with passion so that you don't have divided interests, so that you can just go after him full wholeheartedly. And so if there are people out there who are struggling with, you know, I'm just not attracted to the opposite sex, praise God. And now go thank him and serve him and forget about what the world is trying to place that identity on you and call it a blessing. Say, thank you, God. And now let your identity in Christ be what drives your purpose in this world. Trying, I have a question before you move on. Okay, yeah, go ahead. Um, the virgins in the Greek, is this... I want you to see that these 144,000 are basically those who never forsook God. They remained focused without divided interests. And so if these people are truly virgins... I don't believe it's because they had some disdain for women or anything like that. It's simply saying what Paul said. I am here on this earth not for me, not for my passions in any way, shape, or form. I've got one focus, and that is for God. And there would be nothing wrong with that. In fact, it, it is a blessing. What we're seeing, Revelation 7, 17, there was a promise that <clears throat> if you look back, and I have that down, I don't remember exactly what that is. What, uh, here it is. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. The lamb at the center of the throne is what we saw in chapter 5. It's what we're seeing here. He's, he's going to be their shepherd. And he's going to lead them to living waters. So what we're seeing is that these people are now at the throne of God. And they're going to be led to living waters. That's, in essence, a promise being fulfilled that we're just starting to get a glimpse of here in chapter 14 now. Now, another aspect that we see here, we see they're virgins. We see they follow the lamb wherever he goes. I don't know where he's going. But in sense, the Lamb is the Word of God, and so, I don't know, I think that that pretty much means they follow the Word. It also says He's the first fruits to God, and they are without fault. Let's look at the first fruit aspect here as well. 1 Samuel 21.5, Then David answered the priests, by the way, this is when David got bread from the temple when he was fleeing from Saul. He goes there and he says, do you have any food? And he says, we don't have anything. But the bread in the temple, well, that was only to be eaten by the priests. And the priest said, well, we've got this bread. And David said, oh, great. And so they eat it. And Jesus makes reference to this even in the New Testament as if David did nothing wrong. Which is interesting because David, as a Messiah picture, is not only a king, 
a prophet, but also a priest. And we see all three of those in the Old Testament. We see that David wears the linen garments as he's bringing the ark in. We see aspects of him being a priest. His sons are called priests, but they're not priests. But they're called that in the Old Testament. That's because this is a picture of the Messiah. But anyway, David answered the priest and said to him, Truly, women have been kept from us about three days since I came out. And the vessels of the young men are holy, and the bread is in effect common, even though it was consecrated in the vessel this day. What's fascinating about this is what's going on is when David comes to get this, <coughs> the priest asks him, Have you been kept pure from women? And here's his response. Absolutely. Just like any time we go out to war, we are pure from women. We don't go sleeping with our wives. Remember Uriah, the Hittite? A godly man, one of David's mighty men that David ended up murdering. And he slept with his wife, got her pregnant, so to try and cover it up, he says to Uriah, he says, bring Uriah back from the front lines. He goes and he gets him drunk and he says, now go, go home, thinking this guy's going to go home and sleep with his wife. And then he's going to think that that baby is his. This man was so upright and there was some understanding in his mind because he, he doesn't do that. He sleeps outside instead. I think my wife would probably be very angry with me if I did that. I don't know. But that's how upright Uriah was. Gets drunk again. Still won't go sleep. And that's why David says, all right, I'm going to kill him. Because I can't get him to be unrighteous in any way. Uriah somehow knew that before going to battle, we stay away from that. We keep pure. I, I don't know. And I've heard all kinds of examples, you know, well, it just, you know, their testosterone is up there. It makes them better warriors and better fighters. That that's why they did that. I don't know. All I know is it seems like this was used as some kind of upright righteousness on Uriah's account. Maybe it's that interest being divided. Something, a desire of the flesh versus purely a desire of, of God. So, it's an interesting connection here, to me anyway, for that. Um, it was a holy war that they were fighting. Um, that's what Uriah would basically call it. And I think what's happening here is a holy war. Um, did I... I forgot to mention 2 Corinthians 11.2 here. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband to Christ so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. Paul is speaking to the church here. And so, in essence, all of you married people with children here are going to be presented to God as pure virgins. And that's why I say it doesn't have to be that these guys never were with women. It could be both. Maybe they really weren't, but even if they had, spiritually, they are pure virgins. The first fruit aspect, Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest, it says in Jeremiah 2, verse 3. 
Notice it says that of Israel. If you go back to Revelation 7, we see that the 144,000 are 12,000 from each tribe of Israel. And immediately after they were sealed, we see then standing a group of from every tongue, language, people, uh, whatever the fourth thing is, we'll see it here again. So it seemed to separate them. Here it says Israel is the first fruits of the harvest. I tend to think that these 144,000 are truly Jewish in blood, nature, DNA. James states he chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. In this sense, I think that in some sense, any Christian becomes a first fruit. So again, both. I think in the reality, the physical, yes, they are probably DNA Jew. But in the spiritual, you are also grafted in. And as I've said before, you are now Israel. Why? Because of the faith of Abraham. Just because you are a DNA Jew does not mean you are a Jew or of the faith of Abraham, a Christian, a believer, a child of God. As Paul says in Romans, a Jew is not one who is merely one outwardly, but rather one who is a Jew inwardly, who has had a circumcision of the heart done. Okay? They are blameless. It said that they were without fault, this 144,000. Boy, that is a tough one. That is a tough one for us to swallow sometimes. It says this in Revelation 3, 4, Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy, pure, virgins, there is a reason in weddings that women are to wear white. We've gotten away from that, probably because most women are not virgins when they get married anymore. But they're supposed to be. Paul says to keep the marriage bed pure, or Hebrew says that. Keep the marriage bed pure. And so, this is the, the idea of without fault. We're about to see soon here a wedding banquet of the Lamb, and that's why white linen is given to them, because, guys, Yeshua has made you pure. You are to be presented as a pure virgin, and that white means something. You are made white by the blood of the Lamb your clothing, your linen. Look at Philippians 2.15. So that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. How many of you feel blameless and pure? But I want you to see how many times, and I've just got a small sample here, of what scripture says you are. Are you getting your identity from your own feelings? Are you getting your identity from the world? 
from bad theology or do you get it from the Bible? You are blameless. Remember, a priest in the Old Testament to serve had to be pure and blameless. That's why they wrote, had holy to the Lord on their mitre. No blemishes. These 144,000 are pure and blameless, thanks to Yeshua. You are pure and blameless, thanks to Yeshua. We have a hard time saying this today. As a matter of fact, honestly, in some churches, you know what we focus on? Our depravity. You're no good. You're unholy. You're just a sinner. I grew up in a church where every Sunday I said, I, a poor, miserable sinner, confess unto you all my sins and iniquities. Now, there is a truth to that. I sin every week. In some sense, I am a poor, miserable sinner. But if that's where I stay, if that's where my mind is, oh, I'm a poor, miserable sinner, I'm so depraved. How are you ever going to experience the joy of your salvation? How are you ever going to understand the identity that God has given you of, of being pure and blameless? To be presented as a pure virgin. Think about it today. Guys, if you go marry a woman who has been broken, is that a good thing or is that a problem? Not saying you shouldn't marry. I'm, not, I'm just saying, is it something that you go, they need to understand she has a new identity. Women especially have a problem with this, feeling depraved and broken and unworthy. And as a husband, we're like, you got to stop. I love you. I love you. I love you. I don't know how many more ways I can tell you I love you. You are accepted. You are everything to me. But it's never enough, is it? So many women have that problem. Take that as an analogy to the church, the bride of Christ. Christ is trying to tell you, you are accepted. I love you, I love you, I love you. And you're like, oh, I can't believe I did this again. I'm such an awful person. How can God love me? Right? A bunch of whiny brides. Yeah. To get the point across. You see, this is why women, it's not good for you to think that, that you need to trust and believe what your bridegroom is telling you. Accept the love that he is giving you. Because it's not healthy for you not to receive that. And it's not healthy for us as a church to say, I know Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross, thank you for everything you did for me, but I gotta be better before it really takes root. I've gotta be better before it becomes true. Guys, you'll never be good enough for that truth to become a reality. Yep. Even though you're not thinking highly of yourself, you're still thinking of yourself. Absolutely. And I was thinking about that today, I, this week sometime. I don't remember what made me think of it, but you could take the most beautiful woman in the world. She's got the world by the tail as far as the physical goes. I don't care who it is, I guarantee you that person 
would have something that she hates about herself. Whether it be her nose, her hair, her feet, I, who knows? But there would be something. And it is. It's a pride thing. It is not accepting your identity. Yep. Yep, and you're not trusting in his promises, you're not trusting in his omnipotence and his omniscience, knowing that he may, may have made you a certain way because that's what he wants you to be. God doesn't make mistakes. And so identity is very important. These 144,000, I'm telling you, they know that they are pure and without fault. Not because of what they have done, but because of Yeshua. But they have accepted and believed that promise. We see Philippians 1.10, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 2.10, you are witnesses and so is God of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. 1 Thessalonians 5.23, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. I, mean, I can go on and on. 1 Thessalonians 3.13, May he strengthen your heart so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of God and Father when our Lord Jesus Christ comes with all his holy ones. Ephesians 5.26, to make her holy. This is husbands. You are to, this is what you're supposed to do to your wives, to make her holy, cleansing her, how? By the washing with water through the word. Husbands, you're doing devotions with your wives, praying with your wives. I've slipped on that a lot. This last week, I told Tara, I, uh, we're, we're praying together. Why? What's gotten into you? I'm just, I need to do what I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah, yeah. You see, this is what we're supposed to be doing. That's what Christ does to us as a model. Husbands, you better be praying with your wives. You better be leading in devotions. Washing her with pure water. Okay, so that, why? To present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Look at this, this here. Zephaniah 3.13, the remnant of Israel will do no wrong. We talking about the Israel of, you know, the scriptures that I read about, all the sins they do time after time after time. Yeah, that one. They will speak no lies, nor will deceit be found in their mouths. They will eat and lie down, and no one will make them afraid. 1 Peter 2, 21, to, you, to this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example, that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Go and sin no more, basically. No deceit was found in his mouth. Okay, so part of this blameless state was that there were no lies found in their mouths. This is basically predicted of God's people. We need to speak the truth of our identity in Christ, realizing that it's not me that makes me blameless. It's Christ in me. 
that makes me blameless. Now, if that doesn't restore unto you the joy of your salvation, I don't know what will. But let me tell you, that is the very foundation of that truth. Because when I went to that church, we would also pray every week the Lord's Prayer. And I know I've probably said this before, but we would pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right? And then we get to the part where it says, Forgive me my trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And I remember thinking, oh, please, Lord, no. I hope you can do better than that. Forgive me my trespasses uh, or for, you know, as I forgive those. I hope he does better than how I forgive others. And I began to realize, no, I, I start thanking God for his forgiveness and say, thank you for forgiving me. Help me to forgive others as you have forgiven me. But we have to speak that truth because remember Jesus said that it's the sick who needs a doctor, right? And then he said later, he said, if, if a man has been, you know, you got this huge debt and then this other guy has this little debt and both debts are forgiven, which guy is going to love God more? Well, the one who had the bigger debt. There is value in understanding that, yes, you were depraved, you were ungodly, you were a sinner. But now, if that's where you stay, you will never feel the appreciation of your forgiveness because you still have to put a little in yourself to make it effective. A little good work here, a little good work there. It will never be effective. When you realize how depraved and, yes, what a worm you are, were then you realize what God has done for you you have been forgiven much and then you will love much I'm telling you these 144,000 that's what drove them to be faultless knowing the truth and accepting that truth so very important Revelation 14, verse 6, getting back to that. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory. For the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water number of things here. First of all, flying in the midst of heaven. Some say that that is, remember the Jews saw three different heavens. The heavens where the birds fly, the heavens where the stars are, and the heavens where God's throne is. They say in the midst of the heaven here is the middle heaven. Through the, the, the star area, this angel is flying through. I don't know. All I know is that he has an everlasting gospel. Something that from beginning to end does not change. <clears throat> the gospel does not change. But what's fascinating to me about this is we even hear what he's preaching. So you want to know what the everlasting gospel is? Look what it says. Fear God. Give him glory. To him, uh, for the hour of his judgment has come, but worship him who made heaven and earth. I find it fascinating, you know, doing what I do for a living, seeing that creation, God as creator, is a foundation of the everlasting gospel. 
And the church has lost their ever-loving mind because so few churches accept that as truth today. I am telling you, creation and God as creator is the very rock upon which the gospel of Jesus Christ and the, how he accomplished the gospel is built on. I don't need to go through all of that again. But that is not an accident. It is not an accident that the devil has taken and, and he's gotten the church to get rid of that truth. We're going to talk about the church here and how they have fallen so far shortly. But this is just one way in which they have done that. Romans 1 says, since the creation of the world, since the very beginning, look at this, we, we almost see an eternal gospel here. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from that which has been made, so that men are without excuse. Next three paragraphs here in Romans are going to say that for although they knew God, they neither glorified God or gave thanks to Him. Their thinking became futile, their foolish hearts are darkened. Although they claim to be wise, they became fools. They reject God as Creator. The very next three paragraphs after that Say what happens when you reject God as creator. Because of this, because they rejected God as creator, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones in the same way the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Homosexuality. Therefore, because you rejected God as creator, it says they... We're given to a depraved mind and all kinds of evils. Go read that. All three paragraphs after that are saying, you reject God as creator, you're in trouble. It is the foundation of knowing God's power, qualities, and nature. His loving nature as well. Yeah. Absolutely. An old earth creationist. I believe I'm going to be in heaven with them. But they have damaged the church. Statistics show us this. Um, reality, experience, all of those things as well as the word of God. An old earth creationist has compromised. And we're going to see a verse coming up in that in 1 Corinthians 3 that I think is a prime example of that. Again, I will be in heaven with old earth creationists but they have compromised on the word of God and they have lost blessings on this earth and in heaven. And I know that's unpopular, but it's the truth. It is what scripture says. Um, now what's interesting here in Revelation 14, if you contrast verse 6 to verse uh, 9 of chapter 7, when we saw the 144,000 before, we saw people of every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. So in chapter 7, verse 9, they are the dead in Christ from the tribulation. Here, they're the ones left on earth. There's kind of a, a contrast that's going to be going on to what we're reading in chapter 14. Um, we'll, we'll get to more of that here in a minute. But 
Again, you saw the 144,000 in chapter 7. You see the people from every tribe, nation, language, and tongue. Here they are again. You saw the voice in both of them. So these are connected in some way. <clears throat> it's not the first time we see an angel flying in midair either. We saw that in chapter 8, verse 13. You're going to see it again in chapter 19, verse 7 of Revelation. So just maybe take note of that. The other thing is those who have not, or who have, I said, not not, not but who have taken the mark of the beast at this point cannot be saved. You're going to see that coming up. And as a result, part of the message that you're going to see here is this. Finish strong. I don't remember who we were talking to this week, but get so tired of reading the book of Kings and Chronicles and you're just rooting on the king. And then it's like, come on, God. Oh, no. <laughs> time and time and time again. There's that rare, you know, like Manasseh who starts out bad and finishes strong. But time and time again, you see those who follow the Lord. And we were talking about youth. And I remember when I was younger, people always kind of telling me that I needed to calm down a little bit because I was a little overzealous and, you know, whatever. And I remember people telling me when you he'll kind of grow out of it. When he gets older, he'll learn, he'll be wiser. And I remember kind of praying, Lord, never let my fire go out. Because we want to finish strong. We don't want to be those who grow weary and lose heart. These 144,000 finish strong. If you've fallen asleep, if you've grown weary, if you've grown tired of the fight, you need to pray, Lord, get me back in the fight. We'll talk maybe a little bit more about that. But earlier in chapter 10, we read, And he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in them, the sea and all that is in it, and said there will be no more delay. That was chapter 10, verse 6. Very similar to this as well. God as creator, going back to that again, is one of the most important doctrines to understand. That's why I have a creation museum, or museums, I guess, right? Because it isn't about that you understand dinosaurs lived with people. It's about that you understand who God is and that his word is an authority. And if you're doubting that, you've got a faith problem. And you're never going to see God as he wants you to see him if you don't walk in full faith. And you begin to doubt God as creator, you will not finish strong. So important. You know, in Romans it says as well in chapter 10, Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. But I ask, did they not hear? Of course they did. Their voice goes into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Whose voice, whose words? You remember if I talked about when you were here for the star message, 
The heavens declare the glory of God. Night after night they pour forth speech. They display knowledge. There is no place where their voice is not heard. The creation, again, declares the glory of God. <clears throat> Katie Luco sent a Jamie Walden message this week. Great message. Um, on the apostasy of the church. One of the things he said, and I've heard him talk about this before, but he says, if I hear the word revival one more time, ah! he hates the word revival. And I agree with him. He says, you don't revive what's dead. It needs resurrected. The church needs a resurrection. You guys have to understand, too, just even from a spiritual perspective, as believers, as Christians, you must die. And then you don't get revived. You get resurrected. You become a new creation in Christ Jesus. The old has gone, the new has come. I was crucified with Christ so that I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. We don't need a revival, you need a resurrection. You need to die. And I'm telling you, the church, for the most part, is dead. I mean, you just drive downtown Hastings, look at the billboards of churches. They're dead. I'm not saying all of them. I'm not saying there's not life in some. But most of them are dead. Bless your pets, all this other garbage. You can go to churches and see the rainbows and you know, the whole message is we accept everybody, but you never hear about Jesus. You never hear about what God's word is. It's all about man's flesh. He also talked about how delusional the church is today. We often treat people as if they're just ignorant. They're not ignorant, they're delusional. Thessalonians, for God sends them a powerful delusion so that they believe the lie. Do you know when you're dealing with somebody who's delusional, you cannot argue common sense with them. Does that kind of sound familiar to what's going on in churches today? Yeah, everywhere. When you're delusional, you cannot reason them to truth. You cannot use scientific arguments to bring them to truth. There is one thing that will allow them to see truth, and that is to die to self. The word of God, not the latest statistic. A world has rejected God as creator. And that's why when I go out and speak on creation, I know that the science will never ever bring somebody to faith. It's the word of God. The best I can hope is that they'll go, you know, some of that might make sense. I need to go look at the word of God. If they have an open heart to do that, I believe the Holy Spirit will grab them and through the word of God change their heart. But let me tell you, your Facebook arguments are not going to bring people to Christ. The word of God is going to do that. This is a spiritual thing. Verse 8, and another angel followed, saying, Babylon has fallen, has fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. I am not going to get through verse 13 here tonight, but 
Babylon is a symbol of both moral corruption here in Revelation as it is the center of Satan's throne, his kingdom. When John was writing this in the days you know, of Jesus, basically, right after, the early church saw Rome as Babylon. They understood Daniel's visions, the four beasts, Rome being the last kingdom, all of that. And I think there's some truth to that. I think there is a Roman connection. And what you're about to see here, though, is the fall of Satan's kingdom. The fall of Babylon. The question is, what is Babylon? Some say it's the United States of America. I'm not saying they're wrong. You're going to see that they... Uh, coming up, that they are the trafficker of human souls. Jamie Walden talked about this as well, just like he was at the Dominican Republic and how the churches there even get money from the prostitution going on in the Dominican Republic. The missionaries, and he talks about the missionaries when he was having all these other missionaries coming over. These prostitutes that they are delivering, these sex-trafficked women, will tell you that their biggest clientele are the missionaries coming over there and the uh, authorities, the law. He said they even keep like badges and stuff like that on the wall, almost like it's a trophy. It doesn't surprise me. I mean, I've said for years from David Wilkerson, um, he was friends with a major hotel um, line, I don't, I don't remember what, one, of the, one of the major ones, and 80% of the pornography, and the best one, I should say, the, the highest amounts of porn being watched in the hotels was when church conferences were going on. Okay, the church is sick. It needs a resurrection. Yeah. And... <clears throat> He talked about these islands are right next to these other islands, which happens to be where the laptop or whatever of, you know, uh, this famous laptop was found, and how Ukraine is so connected to that. Ukraine is one of the largest sex trafficking countries in the world. Almost all of what's happening is coming out of Ukraine, and yet we are all, go Ukraine. Is there a reason for that? Is it because Babylon is protecting her own? America, I mean, I could say, oh, there's so much more sex trafficking going on in India or over here or over there or whatever. But I think that's because we have some laws that are supposed to protect. But I think ultimately the power, the seat of Satan's throne in so much of that is right here in America connected to it in some way, shape or form. I mean, we could go on and on of the problems in which we as a church continue to just turn a blind eye, ignore it, pretend it doesn't happen, or just are so naive that we can't believe that it's going on. I don't know. But we're going to get an outline here showing in chapter 14 that Christ came and he conquered. This is an outline view of it in chapter 14. But when we get to chapter 16 and 18, you're going to get the detailed story. 
Babylon is falling here. You're going to see the details of it falling in chapter 16, 17, and 18. So just kind of keep that in mind when we rewind to chapter 16 when we get, or chapter 14 when we get there. So some say America. I don't know. We, as we get into 16, 17, 18, you're going to see other details that will attach America to this. Uh, that, you know, it, it's kind of the center of wealth, all of these kind of things, a city divided by rivers. There's, there's lots of connections. <coughs> but anyway, the preterist view is going to say that it was Rome in a sense, but in 70 AD is when all of this is going to be fulfilled. And so the kingdom of heaven begins in 70 AD. That's going to be a, a preterist view of that. We'll look at that in a little greater detail later. Um, in verse 8, Babylon was called the great city. And in verse, chapter 11, verse 8, we saw that a great city is mentioned, and that great city turned out to be Jerusalem. So they say, because it's called great here, that Babylon is actually Jerusalem. I don't think that's this. I don't think that's the seat, but that's one that's out there. Others, from a literalist point of view, Saddam Hussein was rebuilding Babylon. You might remember that when he was alive. He was rebuilding Babylon. So people were talking, hey, they might, here it is. They're going to move the seat of power to Babylon. So that was the, a literalist view. I don't know what it is. I kind of think that I'm putting my money on a Roman power, but United States being very much involved in that. If I would you know, put my chips on which one I thought it was, I'm going to say America with Roman influence, like the Vatican, Catholic Church, something like that. We'll see. Isaiah 21.9, though, this is not unique to Revelation. It says, Isaiah spoke of this time when he wrote, Look, here comes a man in a chariot with a team of horses. And he gives back the answer, Babylon has fallen, has fallen. All the images of its gods lie shattered on the ground. Jeremiah 51, Babylon was a gold cup in the Lord's hand. She made the whole earth drunk. The nations drank her wine. Let me ask you, is India the one that influences us or do we influence India? Yeah. China influence us or have we influenced China? Probably a little of both, but there's no question we have influenced China. No question. If you ever see, I mean, the Chinese people that come over here, they have been, America has done that. We have made the nations drunk. Therefore, they have now gone mad. Babylon will suddenly fall and will be broken. Wail over her. Get balm for her pain. Perhaps she can be healed. We would have healed Babylon, but she cannot be healed. Let us leave her and each go to his own land, for her judgment reaches to the skies. It rises as high as the clouds. It's interesting. She cannot be healed. I don't want to sound faithless, but even Jamie Walden was saying, it's too late. American churches, it's too late. It is too late for them. They are gone. What are we hearing in the news all the time now? We are now a post-Christian country. 
I don't disagree. You know, it's always interesting, and they talked about this too, is that there was years ago, read a book, uh, Slouching Towards Gomorrah. Homosexuality, all of those things. If you look historically, every time a country gets into homosexuality, it's not soon and they fall. Yes, and that is one of the things they brought up. Like the Talmud talks about that at Sodom and Gomorrah, I think it was, or, um, or maybe it was in the days before the flood, actually, that there were contracts that they talk about where it was becoming legalized for men to marry men. It's just like in the days of the kings, guys. When the king was ungodly... <laughs> the nation suffered. When the king was godly, the nation was blessed. I'm sure there were all kinds of ungodly people worshiping their false gods and witches and doing all that. But what God was looking for was the leadership. That is the way it works. That's what leadership is about. God expects leaders to be leaders. We're, today in our society, all the employees want to be the leader. We're all to be equal. It's not supposed to be that way. That's wrong. That's unbiblical. There has to be a hierarchy. And the leaders take the responsibility. And what we see is that if a father, we've talked about this going over the Garden of Eden, if a husband is not leading his family, the whole family suffers because the father, the man, is not doing what he's supposed to be doing. And he will take the responsibility for it. Accountability for it. Same thing with an employee. In a business, the same thing with a president in a country. When our laws have made homosexuality and promoted it, is it too late to be healed? As Babylon here? Don't know. But I think it's a real possibility. The other thing I want you to see here in Revelation 14 is you can see the comparison that we've been, not just in chapter 14, but in 13 as well, we see, I talked about this before, where you have God, the dragon being the antithesis of that. Christ, the dragon, or the antichrist being the antithesis of that. The false prophet. I don't, John the Baptist maybe? The precursor? We saw John the Baptist. You have Jesus, God, and John the Baptist for the New Testament. That there's some false prophet. I don't know. We see Jesus is resurrected. You saw that this dragon this, or this beast has a mortal wound. You see that Jesus comes on Mount Zion. You're going to see the dragon on Babylon in the city of seven hills. Just as Zion is real, I think Babylon will also perhaps be very real. Maybe a Roman sense. When we get into chapter 16 through 18, we'll talk more about that. Um... I think I'm going to have to stop there. I, I thought I'd get a little bit further here. It was a pretty yeah, it was. <laughs> so we will not get into the third angel. Uh, we'll get into that next week. I was going to, I'm going to show you actual, I think, sulfur and brimstone from one of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, maybe afterwards we'll even burn it but I won't do that now and choke you out. But um, those going to Israel, we are going to go there again. And we'll, we'll talk about that next week. But anyway.
Let's uh, close there with just the challenge to say, who are you? Who, where are you getting your identity from? And to not grow weary and tired, but to stand against Babylon, to fight against Babylon. It is time for the church, the true capital C church, not the people who go to these buildings around, but the capital C church to stand up, to be holy, to be blameless, to walk wherever the Lamb goes. Whatever the good book tells you to do is what you do. You follow the Lamb. It is time to be separate, not to be blending in with the world so that you can't tell, but that we be different and separate ourselves. It is time to be worthy of the calling that God has called you to do. So let's close in prayer.